And in our case, it's totally worked against us as we just recorded this episode and then realized, for some reason, YouTube doesn't like us and didn't record very well. That includes our audio. So, silly us, here we are recording this final episode once again for all of you to enjoy. My name's Matt. I'm coming to you from Austin. This is Ken coming to us from Houston, where it's hot. Say hello, Ken. Well, now I finally know what it means when they say it's hot as Vulcan. Hailing frequencies are open. Yes, we are uh, in the middle of July recording this. One of the hottest Julys on record. It is a whopping 106 here in Austin. And what's it over by you? Oh, it's merely in the high 90s. The thing is that the humidity is at 212%. (laughs) It is definitely not that here. Luckily, the humidity has not been killing us as it's been killing you, for sure. Well, uh, yeah, it's definitely hot as hot as Vulcan over here, that's for sure. So, uh, in this episode, we get to a little discussion of uh, Ponfarder, which is, it seems a little weird. It's the urge to reproduce, the urge to procreate among Vulcans. I guess so. That makes more sense. Well, of course, I, I don't remember seeing this episode before uh, seeing Star Trek Three, and if I did... Uh, none of this really registered for me. So then once I saw Star Trek Three and then saw this episode, I was like, Pond Far, I remember that from Star Trek Three. It's so cool. I always loved it, much like Wrath of Khan, when they bring mythology from the original series into the, the movies. That's, uh, it's always fun when you can bring in something from the past and make it part of a new thing. You know, uh, it's much like some of the references that you get in Next Generation of uh, original series stuff. Like The Naked Now, for instance. It's always fun when they do that. It's, it's also like that in Doctor Who a lot. You know, you have 50 years of canon that you have in which to draw on, so uh, whenever they bring in something from the past, it always makes me uh, generally excited. So if I climb back on that hobby horse that Star Trek... Uh, would be so interesting if it were more archy. Yes, please. And less episodic. Amazing. Imagine a, a Ponfar, uh, yep. you know, like a three-episode arc, in which, you know, you have the episode in which they're visiting Planet of the Week, but Spock is becoming irritable and difficult and more isolated, and then episode two, you'd have uh, kind of the we. we Basically, this episode, or the first half of this episode, where there's like some crisis that, now in this case, it's a, it's pointless, right? They're going to see some um, celebration. They're just there to show the colors. But you could imagine one that was had more tension. And uh, certainly Roddenberry liked to ratchet up the tension artificially. So, you know, you, whether you have some kind of pointless thing that you're going to, whether you have some kind of... Yeah, space, you know, negative space wedgie. 
you want to have the middle part where uh, Spock is really uh, unable to function, what we kind of see in the most of the middle half of this, uh, um, first half of this episode. And then episode three would be yeah. on Vulcan. That would be the the episode. So we're uh, 1967. Sexual hormones weren't a big thing we were talking about on TV. Heck, we can't even get schools nowadays to talk about puberty. So uh, you can guess that they didn't really want to talk about it in Star Trek. So what we get here is another clever way for, uh, for us to talk about a thing that's happening in a real human experience. But we'll give it to a, uh, an alien, and then that way it takes the curse off. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, oh, well, we're not really talking about puberty. This is a thing that happens to, uh... This isn't puberty. It's Ponfar. Totally different. Yes, this is Ponfar. That's right. So as we are the uh, first show to talk about puberty on air, we are also uh, many other firsts happening here in Amok Time. We get our Well, we did have uh, the one with the teenage boy, and he kept pursuing Rand. I think it was the second aired episode. I think it was uh, uh, later in, in our order because we were doing production order. Uh, yeah, Charlie X. Oh, that's true. I guess we did in Charlie X, didn't we? And then there's Miri. Oh, well. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, they changed. They're not kids anymore when they uh, hit puberty. I forget. So, yeah, many firsts here happening in uh, this episode. We get our first trip to Vulcan. The, the first uh, appliance of the Vulcan hand salute. We get our first reference to Live Long and Prosper. And uh, we get uh, the first time Mr. Spock, under his own will, has expressed emotion. This is really a great episode for building the Vulcan culture, learning about the Vulcans, giving the Vulcans some backstory, making them uh, richer. Find out uh, about the Vulcans. Yeah. Universe. Plus, for the first time, we'll meet other Vulcans. Spock isn't our only example anymore. Yeah, it was the first time I'm really meeting, right? Yeah, really meeting another Vulcan. We've only ever met Spock. So we get to Pring and T'Pau and Stan and the guards who carry T'Pau in. <laughs> I guess we don't really meet them. Those guards are wearing the same helmets as the Romulans. So again, we see this deep connection yeah. between Romulans and Vulcans. Yep. Absolutely. And uh, we're going to, in just a few episodes, we're going to get some more with Journey to Babel here. We're going to get, uh, we're going to get Spock's father and his, well, I guess man is not really Vulcan, but you know, we got that coming too. It's going to be fun. So uh, this episode started with some, uh, the two genes, Roddenberry and Kuhn, brainstorming. They hatched this idea for a muck time. They then handed the premise over to uh, one of our favorite writers, uh, Theodore Sturgeon who is just coming off of his first Star Trek writing job, which was Shore Leave, as you remember. This will be his second assignment, and this was also meant to be an episode that was the first part of season one, or that was uh, for season one. NBC's Dan Robertson, uh, always a, an advocate for good storytelling, says, uh, this is a superior outline, and one that I should add, to, uh, add more to uh, in-depth the audience appeal for Mr. Spock. Because, of course, we remember at this point, you know, everybody loves Spock here. Uh, that was a TV show starring Ray Romano. Everybody loves Spock. Um, Robertson uh, immediately saw the potential for this story to be among the best of the series. Uh, uh, but also, 
uh, was instrumental in uh, changing a very important uh, uh, point of the story, which in which he said, I think that we should minimize any attempts on the author's part of having Spock running around the ship and being engaged in various little camos without cameos with other members of the crew to point out that there's something amiss with him. We've already done this several times. Cashman goes to point out, we saw it with Kirk and the Enemy Within. Spock has done it, you know, three times in Operation Annihilate, This Side of Paradise, and uh, The Naked Time. So uh, he's like, maybe this time we can just, you know, have it played off by Kirk and McCoy talking about how strange he's been acting lately. He also says, uh, also in this original story treatment, Kirk was a little more skeptical about uh, what McCoy and uh, – uh, or about Kirk not listening to McCoy. Sorry. I'm going to start that again. Uh, in Sturgeon's uh, first take on the story, Kirk was uh, skeptical about the news of Spock from McCoy. And uh, uh, Robertson goes on to say, I think Kirk's reaction to being told that he must get Spock to the planet Vulcan as soon as possible – uh, it's not in keeping with the warm characterization of our starship captain. We realize that he must consider what is right for the spaceship, but he, more than anyone aboard, knows Spock and is closer to him, so his reactions should be a little bit different than was outlined in that original take. Okay, so that makes sense. But I think it's important to remember that the Vulcans, like the Romulans, are secret keepers. And in this episode, it may just feel like privacy... Yeah. But there's an awful lot of, about the Vulcans we never really get exposed to until we have to. But this comes... And this is an example. So I don't think that Kirk necessarily would know a lot about the Vulcans and their particular ways or their physiology because Spock's just not going to talk about it. Yeah. Which is where this episode goes completely because, uh, yeah, it doesn't seem like that's happening at all, for sure. Um, yeah, because they, so, and this is the never really came to a conclusive answer for, answer to when we were talking last episode. But is the mate or die theological, or is it part of this tournament, or you know, is it like because what happens in at the end of the episode is Spock doesn't mate. I mean, I guess he goes through the pond far. I think the way the blood fever works her. is that he has to fight for his mates. This is where he either gets to mate. Or he dies, because if he wins, he mates. If he dies, he dies. Okay, all right. Actually, that, that actually works for me. I like that as an answer. That's good. Oh, but back to your other point, um, which is something you said last time, is that this comes from the olden times. This comes from the ancient evolutionary process of, of the Vulcans. Yeah, so this is going to be a cultural construct aimed at moderating, monitoring, organizing biological drives. So Spock's going to have this drive that he has to, like an elk, get out there with his antlers, defeat the other males, and mate in the mating season in order to carry on into the next generation. But what we've got in this episode is a kind of a, let's you know organize this culturally, let's direct it, let's make it safe, because we don't want guys just, like, in the middle of the street suddenly go, all right, this is it, I'm in Potiphar now, let's do it. Instead, it's going to be, uh, you know, period of isolation, and then we're going to hit the gong, and then the ceremony begins, and 
and then the Elks come out and, and battle it out. So I think that the, there's this deep evolutionary part in which lots of species have this need to display in order to win access to mating. But then, of course, we're, we're a civilized people, so what we do is we, we surround that with rituals. Of course, Spock's half-human. It would be difficult to say which... Yeah, he, he even says he was hoping it wasn't going to get to him because of his half-human uh, physiology. Which set of sex drives he would have, the human or the Vulcan? Would he be kind of like Kirk, always ready to meet the ladies? Or would he be like a Vulcan once every seven years, suddenly he's going to kill her or mate? Although, we don't see, you know, up till now, Spock has not kind of been like Kirk, yeah. well, always too, ready I mean, to meet the lady. So I think, by default, we're putting him in the Vul- We'd have to put him in the Vulcan camp. Yeah, I, I, that's probably actually it. They're like, oh, it's getting to that seven-year mark. I better... So uh, G.C. Fontana goes on to say this about Theodore Sturgeon. He always took a lot of time to get his scripts out. Amok time took a lot of time, and uh, he wasn't used to the uh, television pace. He was used to writing in short stories and his novels at his own speed. So uh, it it became clear as they uh, were getting towards the uh, end of the first, trying to get the second one out of him, that "Ah, it looks like this is going to be a second season episode. But then it became the perfect idea to make this the, uh, the first episode of the first season, right? If you remember, as we were talking before, you know, uh, Leonard Nimoy's Spock album came out, and uh, that was a big hit. You know, so Spock fever was still running rampant over, and Leonard Nimoy had just won the uh, Emmy Award, too. So, you know, Spock fever was running rampant at this point. So, of course, let's make a very Spock-focused episode, a very Vulcan-focused episode, um, the first one of the season. It's actually really good uh, programming. That's right. That's right. Oh, no! So they uh, finally get uh, Sturgeon's first draft in. Uh, There's a lot of notes on it. D.C. Fontana herself uh, gives a four-page memo, you know, talking uh, talking about some of the things she feels should be fixed. One of which was really interesting is that Sturgeon included a a character named Maggie, by the way, very Star Trek, who um, was uh, smitten with Mr. Spock, right? So we have this, like, other female human who is, like, gaga over Spock. And so uh, D.C. Fontana's like, well, look, first of all, we've already got another character who's gaga over Spock, Christine Chapel. Not only that, she's a mature woman who we have met before and we know. So uh, let's go ahead and make that change. And they uh, totally did. So Robert Justman, in uh, one of his notes, uh, made a funny joke about uh, – he said – I think that the writer has made a Freudian slip in naming Spock's rival. Spore is a very interesting name. How about just renaming him Sperm? Wouldn't that just be better? Justman says. I love that. So, uh, side note. I, I know at this point that we've talked about so much other stuff before I got to this point in our notes, and I can't remember what any of that other stuff was. So sad. 
Um, so, of course, last time uh, Roddenberry had to send instructions to Theodore Sturgeon. Remember, uh, for short leave, Sturgeon did not respond very well with the letter. There was a lot of hurt behind it. So uh, Roddenberry chose a different way to do it this time. He decided, uh, eh, Gene Kuhn, why don't you do it? You send him the notes this time. Uh, well, he, of course, complimented him, saying that we all love the first draft. It was great. Uh, he goes, there's a certain amount of polishing that needs to be done. Of course, uh, this translated to a ton of rewriting. But uh, uh, he wrote a couple of other funny things which I enjoyed, which were, um, we have to learn why Spock will die if he doesn't get the Vulcan, to Vulcan in eight days. What kills him? Swollen gonads? <laughs> uh, he also says, and since we've established that Spock either gets, uh, gets to Vulcan within eight days or he dies, uh, why doesn't he do so? Why doesn't he die uh, when he doesn't get married and or laid? We must establish a sound explanation or have it explained to us or a lot of people will be very unhappy. Also, I've met with some resentment to the name Spore. He thinks it might be dot, 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 suggestive, dot, dot, dot. I love that. So after uh, Sturgeon finishes draft two, which, by the way, he doesn't even completely complete, uh, he sends act one and act two. And uh, they're like, okay, this is great. We'll go ahead and move on with, with this. Thanks. So uh, DC Fontana gets her uh, hands on it and uh, ends up writing the, uh, the yellow cover, which uh, is the first for the cast. So that was exciting. So Pete Sloan says that. Uh, you basically have most of it. Uh, but what he also did say is that um, it was a very tight and very narrow sort of walkway that Roddenberry and these other people were on. Um, you know, there's, there's this very fine way of writing, as we've learned all along. There's a very fine way of writing what Star Trek is. And so some of it is very sci-fi, and some of it is very just whatever Star Trek is on its own. Uh, he ends it by saying, so the scientific accuracy of Star Trek could have been a lot better, but it also could have been way worse. So we have to give them a total A-plus for effort, which I thought was funny. It's hard, though, to have scientific accuracy based on 23rd century science, since we don't know what that is. Obviously, you can avoid grotesquely breaking 20th century science that we ought to know about. Like, uh, we've we've made fun sometimes in which orbits that are decaying happen way too fast. Or, you know, there's a, there's a couple of things. But in a lot of ways, 23rd century science, the way it's being portrayed in the show, starting with warp drive and teleportation, is beyond what we can explain with current science. And I think they mostly fix that in the next generation and going forward by improving the quality of the technobabble. You know, one of the things that I, I really liked about this episode was in their construction of the Vulcan language, how they, they thought about how these words surrounding the wedding the, the what we're going to call the bride, what we're going to call the ceremony, what we're going to call, they all have this kind of Cali sound to them in the same way yeah. that words like uh, marriage, matron, uh, mother, matrimony, um, you know, all have, uh, start with an M-A, right? And so we've got these words that suggest to us, oh, there's a thing going on in the words, the Vulcan words surrounding it all, maybe they have a common origin, or maybe some are derived from 
uh, like the the main word, like wife, and then this is the wife ceremony, and uh, you know that kind of thing. So it felt like the Vulcans were a, it was a real language, it was a living language. It just wasn't a bunch of random words struck together. Yeah, like uh, it's almost like uh, the word you used last time was like uh, the matron, you know, for Callie. So it was like you had your maid, you know, not your maid of honor, that's silly. But, you know, you had your, like, the fiancé or the wife was also had Callie in it. And uh, the, 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 the festival itself also had a Cal in it. Was this in the original script? Was this something that they came up with from the beginning? No, it, it didn't make any sense. And in fact, DC Fontana was the one who was like, you know, I, I think this sounds ridiculous. There was there was one line that she pointed out where apparently uh, apparently Tapao says something like Spock Clark. You know, it's just like it was K L A R K, but it still sounded like Clark. It was just like it didn't really work. So actually, they went to uh, the Deforest Institute, which we've heard about the Deforest Institute before. They're one of the ones who kind of double-check the science and whatnot of uh, what was happening in each episode. And so he sort of started to help develop some of that Vulcan language at that point. So, yeah, that was something else they were done. So if you'll remember last uh, week when we were talking about uh, Friday's Child, but, uh, you know, she wanted Julie Newmar to be the – D.C. Fontana wanted Julie Newmar to be this, you know, very, like, um, vicious person. You know, she wanted her to not uh, – you know, she wanted her to – give herself as opposed to her baby and you know all of those things we talked about last time but since Jean threw it out there she was able to use it here you know so that uh you know being more calculating so that at the end of the end of the episode when she says you'll be gone but I'll still be here and Stan will be here so no matter what well it, it is very logical so that fits with being Vulcans one of the things that can catch us off guard here is that you know according to to Myers-Briggs, 75% of women are Fs, so they're judging things with feelings, and that's not what she's doing here. Yeah. Whether it's because of Vulcan culture or whether it's because the proportion of feelers in F society is dramatically yes, exactly. smaller, what she's doing here is just, I made a logical calculation, you know, you're going to be gone, he's going to be here. No matter what, exactly. I'm on a companion, so hasta la vista. Uh, she also said that she was given this episode because she was the resident Vulcan expert, in quotations. Uh, she goes, so I got that task. But then she does go on to say, uh, but delving into the Vulcan culture that nobody had seen before, the ceremony, the formality of it, this woman who was at the council to pow, that was all basically Theodore Sturgeon. So she says, I just took it in my hands and made it more starky. Um... So Nimoy gets the script, and then he sends out this memo. Having just finished reading Amok Time, I'm very happy with it. I think that the story was very successful, involves all of our characters in strong and meaningful relationships. There's a strong line of suspense and emotional contact throughout the script. Nimoy says, I finished reading Amok Time and am very, very happy with it. I think that the story was very successful and involves all of our central characters in strong and meaningful relationships. There's a strong line of suspense and emotional contact throughout the script. However, Nimoy did not uh, appreciate shock, or shock, Spock showing an emotional experience with Kirk at the conclusion of the story. Um, much like in Naked Time when he goes to cry and he suggested, well, what if I went into the room and did this on my own? Like 
Spock wouldn't let other people see him crying. He thinks at this point it would be the same thing, like have Spock go off and, you know, be happy that Kirk is alive all on his own, you know. Uh, I can just imagine a scene where, you know, he walks off and then, you know, takes a moment on the other side of the door and smiles to himself how happy he is or something, you know. As uh, Cashman puts it, which I really like, the writers had a better idea. Audience reaction regarding this highly emotional scene has long since proved that the writers were right. I love that. It is a spontaneous response. He may not have been able to withhold it. Yeah, definitely. So then they got to the point of like, okay, so now we have this great script. How the heck are we going to film Vulcan, right? You know, because, uh, you know, they talked about going to Kirk's Rock again. They talked about going to a couple of uh, other different places, but they just didn't feel like anything was exotic enough. So they decided, we'll just film it on the stage. We'll give it the, a nice red sky, so that'll look different. And we'll just make sure that uh, Jeffries comes up with something new and different that'll, that'll look, you know, not like anything else on Earth. I think it's a very evocative uh, background and scene. You know, they, they could have found some place yeah. like in Arizona or New Mexico or Nevada or Utah that that had some evocation of a desert planet, but it would have looked like the American West, and this is better, I think. You know, thinking, though, it's like in Next Generation, they did that a lot, though, that they seemed to use Earth places that had never been that just didn't feel like you'd seen them before anywhere else on Earth. They always kind of looked different. I mean, I know a lot of it was like gardens and forests and trees and stuff, but it, a lot of it didn't feel like, you know, someplace we had been before. So uh, Joseph Pevney here is hired to direct. Uh, he uh, This is his third episode already this season that he's been doing, following Cat's Paw and Friday's Child, so... He would uh, obviously continue doing a lot of episodes here in season two. Uh, he also had a big say in casting. So let's take us into casting. We got Arlene uh, Martel here, who was 31 when she was hired to play uh, Spock's intended bride to Pring. She had been in The Outer Limits and Twilight Zone, Wild Wild West. She even had a recurring role on Hogan's Heroes, which is weird. Uh, but... Interestingly enough, her first encounter with Star Trek happened two years earlier when she tried out for the role of uh, Dr. Daner in uh, Where No Man Has Gone Before. She said, I read for the pilot for that part that Sally Kellerman ended up doing, but I couldn't possibly do something that would require wearing full contact lenses, she said. My eyes are really sensitive. And so she says, even when I see someone else put them in, I have to look away. So Pevney saw uh, Martell several times before uh, casting Amok Time. She said that they, uh, she was brought in for Cat's Paw to play that, uh, the alien woman Sylvia, uh, but she kept hearing whispers in the background. It's like, no, we need to save her later, blah, blah, blah. And she said, with all due respect to Cat's Paw, this has become a classic, uh, a favorite favorite, she said. So she's really happy to be a part of it. And then here we get uh, Lawrence Monta uh, uh, Montague. That's what I wanted to say, but that's not it. Montaigne, that's who it is. Lawrence Montaigne here, who, uh, of course, we previously saw as the Romulan in Balance of Terror, as you recall, working with Mark Leonard, of course, who would go on to become uh, Spock's father, which is fun. So, you know, he had some problems because uh, he was originally going to be brought on as a uh, Vulcan to replace Spock if the, uh, work be or if the contracts between Spock and Desilu didn't work out. He says, uh, they called my agent and were drawing up contracts. 
and I had to stay available. But there was this contingency clause that if Leonard does a 180 and comes back to the series, I'd get offered another part on the show. Meanwhile, I keep calling my agent saying, hey, you know, I'm not working. Hey, you know, I'm not working. I'm not making any money. What's going on? And uh, he says, uh, listen, don't be greedy. You've got this series. This is written in stone. You're in. And, of course, it doesn't work out. So then they called me with this other role, which was Stan. When I saw the script, I had a heart attack because I had five lines. I didn't really want to do it. I had to turn that part down, which he tried to do. And, of course, these small parts were a step backwards for Montaigne, who had, you know, been in uh, The Great Escape, you know, a big movie. He had uh, worked with William Shatner in Cold Hands, Warm Heart on The Outer Limits. He was the Joker's right-hand man as Mr. Glee in The Batman, the 66 series. So, uh, you know, he's been refusing work for over a month, and now he gets offered to play this part that has, like, what, five lines? So, uh, you know, he turns it down. And so Roddenberry calls him back, and he says uh, he started talking to me about how important this role was and this, that, and the other thing. And then he said something to the effect of, hey, if you want to work at Paramount again, you've got to do this. Those weren't his exact words, but it was basically what he was intimating. And uh, so that's how I'm in a muck time, and the rest is history. So here we go again. You, we get uh, Gene, you know, using his what little power he has to make sure that things go his way. So uh, now knowing, of course, that this is going to be the season opener uh, and being able to spend a little extra time on the script, they actually gave themselves more time for production at this point, too. They gave themselves seven days as opposed to the usual uh, five or six that it was. Uh, Martel goes on to talk about uh, the experience of filming the episode. She says, uh, the weapons and the whole pageantry of their entrance into the scene, that was gripping to me. The whole ritual was so compelling and exciting, and the story had such substance. I got caught up in the fervor of it, she says. She said, uh, Joseph Pevney kept leaning over to me and saying, give me less, give me less, which is unusual because the director usually says, give me more, give me more. But he said, give me less, and I gave him less. And then he said, no, I want even less than that. And I said, well, if I give you any less, I won't be doing anything. And he said, yeah, that's just what I want you to do. So that's what I did, and I was just there, she said. She also said that Bill Shatner certainly did not help my concentration. He kept trying to break me up and saying very risque things that were play upon Vulcan words like pon far. Or he had his own take on that and the other Vulcan terminology, and they were all sexual innuendos. And he is funny. And so, uh, and so there's all this giggling, and I pleaded with him, stop, you're going to get me fired. And finally, the director came over and he said, do I have to separate you two? And he spoke to us like we were kids misbehaving in school. And I thought, oh, God, here it comes this is when they're going to fire me. Bill made it very difficult, both fun and difficult. Leonard, on the other hand, was very remote, as was his character, she said. Uh, Joseph Pevney had this to say about the Vulcan greeting, which, again, this is the first time we get the uh, Vulcan symbol, symbol, live long and prosper, the greeting. Uh, he said uh, that he went to Nimoy and says, we've got to come up with some special greeting, like a Vulcan handshake or hello. So in a 1968 interview on the Star Trek set, Nimoy said, I decided that the Vulcans were a hand-oriented people. They touch index fingers to greet each other in a gesture like this. And he holds up his hand in a double finger. And they have a greeting which says, live long and live prosperous. Now, I haven't been able to work those kinds of things into every script, but it's the kind of thing I'm constantly working for. Nimoy goes on to say that I was really touched by this storyline. 
and the dramatic power of the scene, which immediately follows the fight, where Spock appears to have killed Captain Kirk. Later, as we shot the scene, and T'Pau says to Kirk, live long and prosper, I was always so overcome by emotion of that scene that when I said what I said, I could barely choke out those moving words. One last thing to get to before we get to the uh, bulk and the fun of this episode. Sturgeon said, um, of the line, you can have her. After a time, you may now find that the having is not as pleasing as the thing is wanting. That's what Spock says to Stan at that point. He says, I'm immensely proud of that line, and it was crucial for the entire plot of the Star Trek episode. I was gone. Or it was, I'm sorry. It was gone. Now, usually, I'm a very quiet and unaggressive person. I don't like to make trouble, but this time I just flipped out. I went roaring down to Bob Justman's office, and I just raised hell. And after a while, a little, he gradually began to understood what, what I was saying. And he jumped up and he said, come with me. He went right down to the editing room where they were cutting my episode. And after some judicious trimming on the editor's part, that line was reinserted. So uh, here we got another example of an uh, author who is, you know, putting forth what he thinks the episode should totally be about, and uh, sure enough, he gets his way. Uh, uh, that's it. I think that after, uh, after that, I say, uh, let's get into it. Captain's log, starting. It's five-year mission. Yes, let's do all of the things and do it right now. So this episode starts off right at the very beginning with McCoy coming out of a, a doorway. I don't know if this is supposed to be a uh, uh, an elevator or what, but he just happens to find Kirk, who is climbing out of a Jeffrey's tube. Uh, I, don't, I don't know why he's climbing into this Jeffrey's tube. He's apparently in a hurry to get somewhere. I don't know that the, uh, the Jeffrey's tube is the best way to uh, get from one place to another, but sure enough, he that was climbing. I don't know if he was got tired of waiting for a turbo lift or what, but he's in such a hurry. Bones asks Kirk if he's seen Spock, and if he's been asking weird, Kirk says no. Chapel then uh, enters and then tries to unenter as she turns around, seeing seeing uh, Kirk and Bones sitting there. Bones calls her over. Kirk then tries to slip out of a way, but Bones calls him right back. She has a bowl of Vulcan Plomique soup with a K. Uh, made herself. To which she said to her, oh, you never give up hope, do you? Well, Chapel reiterates that Spock hasn't been eating. Bones just said that a couple of minutes ago. Uh, she's hoping that he will eat this. So she goes into uh, Spock's quarters. Bones then gives another example of Spock telling him, uh, you know, he was trying to do a, a, a medical thing on him and said to him, uh, if you insist on prying into my purple life, I will break your neck, he says. Oh, my goodness. Then uh, suddenly the door opens, Spock yells, Chapel runs out, and a bowl of plomeek soup comes flying out after her. Oh, my gosh. He then uh, walks out and is very like, oh, my gosh, there's Kirk. Sorry, I said that in front of you. Tries to do the, uh, you know. Yeah, he does. Uh, he asks if they can uh, take a leave of absence on Vulcan. If we uh, change course now, we will only uh, be uh, two point. 2.8 light days away, he says. Kirk inquires to why. Spock says, I've made my request. All I require of you is to answer yes or no, he says. Opening credits. 
So as always, we get this like really great teaser moment here, right? Uh, you know, it's a doozy. This whole thing is about Spock and that something's wrong with Spock. And then we see his behavior, right? And then, boom, we're launched into this episode. Something is wrong with Spock. What is it? Why does he have to go back to the planet? What's happening? Boom. Back at it. So uh, we're in Spock's quarters now, the first time we've seen all of Spock's quarters. Uh, Kirk asks him, why do we have to go? Spock says, I can't tell you. Kirk says, well, in all of my years, I've never known you to ask for leave. You've outright refused them. Why now? Spock is ambivalent to answer. Kirk says, well, we're on our way to Altair 6. They have excellent leave facilities there, he says. So I was wondering if this is another test. Um, I think we talked about this in the alternative factor. There might have been another episode or two where we've discussed this. But, you know, one of Roddenberry's thing is that he wants his leaders to, to, like, trick the crew into doing the thing, right? You know, like he says to her, like Spock says to her in that one episode, oh, well, if you think you can't do it, you know. And she's like, no, 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 I think I can maybe, you know, cross the wires to make it happen. Kirk does that same thing to both Spock and McCoy in an episode. Oh, well, if you don't think you can do it. And sure enough, they're like, oh, well, of course I can. I was just wondering if that was the same thing here, you know. Spock says, no, I must go to Vulcan. And then, uh, so we get this moment here where, go ahead. So, uh, you know, according to one of the animated series, the Joker's Jester, something like that, there's uh, basically a, a holodeck. You know, we have other stuff saying, well, we didn't quite have holodecks into it, but they, they've got some kind of recreation room with holographic technology and... You know, Kirk could say, "Hey, why don't you, why don't you just take a holiday if you need a break? Take a uh, holiday. You know, ride a roller coaster, go to a theme park, uh, sit out at the beach. You know, whatever it is that <laughs> strikes your interest." Spock on a roller coaster. So uh, behind Spock's back, he's like holding—I don't know if it's a knife or if it's maybe the thing that he uses in the in the computer, but he's and he's and he's shaking and he's shaking. So I didn't know if this was like. I thought for a moment that maybe he was going to use it to, like, kill <laughs> Kirk or something or knock him out and try and take, you know, take over the ship and take it to Vulcan. But I think, because we see it a couple of times later as well, that it's just proof of how much he's holding back whatever's going on. Uh, we also know at this point, too, Spock's kind of embarrassed here, you know. This is – it's very uncouth for, you know, someone who's not a Vulcan to know about, uh, you know, these – processes that are happening internally with this enhanced sex drive. It is odd after, I mean, the Federation, it's what now, 200 years? Nobody has been around a Vulcan who's gone through this before. No, you know, There's no, even through the rumor mill, you know, a sense that, you know, hey, Vulcans get kind of crazy and they have to go back home and uh, we don't really know what it's about, but but it's a thing. Instead, nobody knows anything. The doctor knows nothing. The captain knows nothing. Yes. You mentioned last time, too, uh, how, like, it's weird that this is, like, our first... This is the first time that we're encountering it. Nobody in Starfleet knows about these biological functions. So those, those uh, Vulcans, they are excellent secret keepers. Yeah. Or they forgot that there's been a Federation for... More than a week and a half.
So, uh, Kirk, uh, so Spock says to Kirk here, I'm asking you to accept that answer, which Kirk actually does. He alters course for Vulcan and increases speed to warp four so they can get there quicker. Stardate 3372.7. They get a call from Starfleet. The inauguration proceeding on Altair 6 has been moved up a week. Oh, no. They need to go to warp six. Spock is not happy, but he's playing it cool. That night, we get into Kirk's quarters, and uh, he can't sleep. He seems worried about Spock, so he calls up to Chekhov to see how uh, they can reroute the ship and still, go to, uh, and still go by Vulcan. What kind of calculations would that take? But apparently, Spock has already made those calculations, and they are already on their way to Vulcan. Dun-dun. Apparently, he has taken over the ship. Up to the bridge, Kirk uh, comes and calls Mr. Spock to the uh, turbo lift. He tells Spock, why did you uh, move us to Vulcan? Spock says he doesn't remember doing it. He asks to be locked away so that he's not seen. I'm assuming this is so he doesn't, like, freak out in front of people so that people don't... Yeah, some more. Also, probably, too, it's, a, you know, it's part of his embarrassment. He doesn't want people to see him like that. Kirk demands to, uh, he goes to sickbay. McCoy is waiting for you. Spock seems lost and listless. And then he gets into sickbay, and he's like, uh, well, I was just ordered to come here. I'm not necessarily going to stay. And he tries to leave. But Bones doesn't let him. He says, you know, I ain't answer to the same commander you do. Yield to the logic of the situation. Spock says, uh, well, it's not going to help. We're not going to learn anything. On the bridge, then, we get that fun scene you were talking about with Chekhov and Sulu getting space sick. Also, it should be pointed out that this is, uh, this is the last time we'll see Chekhov in that horrible wig. From now on, it'll be his real hair. Nobody loves that wig. What's saying that? So if we are days from Vulcan, that means that we are... We're in the center of the Federation. We're near Earth. We're near Vulcan. We're near Andor. We are at the heart. And for them to, one, have a new member who's joining, that's kind of interesting. I'm wondering what that's all about. And secondly, why doesn't he just get on a shuttlecraft? He'd be like, yeah, I'll I'll catch up with you after the Altair thing. But nobody talks about a shuttlecraft or any kind of rendezvous because, again, if this is the center of the Federation, there's probably a lot of traffic. And... Even if the Enterprise has to go to Altair, someone's passing by. So that seems kind of odd. Exactly. That's what I thought was going to happen the whole time. I was like, why doesn't he just hop in a, in a, in a shuttlecraft? And then like, oh no, Spock stole a shuttlecraft. Now we're going to have to go after him. That's kind of where I thought it was going. Of course, you know, just being between systems, they're probably out of range of these 23rd century shuttlecraft. I don't think we get any episodes where shuttlecraft really... Leave. We get the one where he's uh, go. They're, they're going to study some kind of nebula thing, and the Enterprise is supposed to come back. But traveling interstellar at shuttle, you'd be doing you know, like a I don't know half light speed. You'd have high relativistic effects, and it would still kind of take you forever. So he'd they'd have to arrange a rendezvous. That's right. Um, a little later, we're in back in Kirk's quarters. Uh, Bones runs in and says, uh, no, we have to go to Vulcan. And if we don't, 
Spock will die. Commercial. Commercial. Of course there's a commercial here. Of course. Back at it. Uh, the scene continues where we left off. Uh, why is Spock going to die, Kirk asks. But McCoy doesn't know. There's something about his adrenaline. It's uh, pumping too hard into his system. That's what he compares it to, anyway. Uh, McCoy says Spock won't say what it is, but Kirk decides he's going to go try anyway. Cut to uh, back to Spock's quarters, and he's looking at this picture of this young Vulcan girl whose ears are too big because, as we find out behind the scenes, uh, they only had adult Vulcan ears. They didn't have any ones for kids. So she's kind of like Dumbo with those ears. It's strange that they have such difficulty coming up with ways of hiding Vulcan or Romulan ears. We can't do episodes. We can't have Vulcans. Too expensive to do the makeup. You know, for a child especially, you just put her in a little girl's hat. And, you know, it's a hat that shows Vulcan culture. It's got some, you know, someone's got to sit down and think about it. What would a child, a child Vulcan wear as a hat? Is it? regular in shape is it is it perfectly symmetrical or is it uh, emblematic of some kind of you know principle of mathematics like it's uh, it's arranged in a Fibonacci sequence of you know gradually uh, you know larger proportions or something I mean you, you could come up with some way to go look it's a it's a Vulcan hat for a little girl we're going to hide her ears with this hat but we're going to give her a longer hairstyle and say that, you know, it will ch- the rules are different for children. Because often the rules are different for children. Uh, Kirk comes in and he wants to, you know, he w- I want to know what's going on. Spock again is not telling him. Kirk says, you've been called the fir- best first officer in the fleet. If I'm going to lose him, I want to know why. Spock says, there's a thing that no outworlder may know. We don't even speak about it amongst ourselves. Don't you understand? No, I don't. Explain. Consider it an order. An order. Kirk promises to the confidential. So here's a moment that could have been played as funny, but Nimoy plays it so straight that it's not funny. And even then when Kirk tries to make it funny, it doesn't really work. Plus the music happening now is so like heavy and serious that like none of it just uh, anyway. Anyway, it's <clears throat> Spock says it's biological. Kirk says, as in reproduction. I, I mean, that's fine. It happens to the birds and to the bees. Well, the birds and the bees are not as logical as us, <laughs> says Spock. It does. One has to imagine. It, it does have to be a real burden to be a super logical Vulcan. And to be laid low by your own biology, betrayed by your physical nature in this way. So we go on to find out that the Vulcans are chickening this time. They become very uh, animalistic, very carnal. There's a good word for it. Uh, Spock then asks, how do Vulcans choose their mates? Haven't you ever wondered? Kirk says, I assumed it was done logically. (laughs) Again, another, another joke that doesn't really work because of the music is so tense this time. What did you say? <laughs> on Tinder, yes. On, on, on Vulc, Vulc Tinder, Vulcan Tinder. I don't know. Space Tinder. 
damn it, I wish I would have said that. Okay. Um, we shield it in a custom of antiquity. It brings a madness which rips away our logic. It succumbs us. It is a time of mating. Like salmon who must return to their stream to spawn or to die trying. Spock had hoped that Ponfar would pass him since, you know, he's half and half, but it has caught up to him too. He must return home and take a wife or die. So Kirk says, all right, I'm going to do what I can. Let's try to make this happen for you. So uh, Hura then tries to pipe Spock through to uh, the talk with the Admiral, but uh, sadly she's interrupted loot time, and uh, he gets mad, smashes, smashes the monitor, which is also important because we have to remind the audience how powerful Spock is later when they fight, which they've done once before. Something. Yeah, this side of paradise. Kirk asks the Admiral to be diverted to Vulcan, but won't explain why he needs to do that. The Admiral then explains that Altair 6 is important. Our appearance there will cause ripples that will be felt all the way to the Klingon Empire. You've got to go to Altair 6. Admiral out. <laughs> so uh, Kirk rejects going. He's like, they're going to be... He says there are going to be uh, two other starships there. This is all for diplomacy. McCoy says, oh, you're going to risk your career? To which Kirk, I love this, replies, I owe him my life a hundred times over. Isn't that worth a career? So in the middle of this conversation then, Chapel gets up to leave. Luckily, this doesn't turn out nearly as badly as I thought it was going to. Excuse me. As badly as I thought it was going to, but it's still awkward and why is she there? So, uh, she, first of all, she just waltzes right in to, uh, to Spock's room. Like, no, like, ding, ding, or anything. No, hey, can I come in? Or she is inappropriately using, like, the emergency get-through to, uh, I'm a medical officer. I should be able to. Yes. So, uh, I guess she didn't learn her first lesson her lesson the first time. Ridiculous. She's hoping, anyway. Uh, but then she smartly decides to let Spock sleep and starts to walk away. Oh, but then he awakes. He says he, he had a dream where she's been trying to tell him something, and he couldn't hear it. But then... Oh, could be. Well, not menacingly, he then says, it would be illogical for us to ignore our natures. Wow. All right. See, this is where I thought this whole thing was going. But uh, then all he does is say, hey, make me some soup. That's true. Well, and as we saw in you know, Star Trek Three, how the pond far works with the fingers. There's definitely some bonding involved. Um, Spock asks Kirk to come and stand with him at uh, the brief ceremony. There's a brief ceremony, he says. Please come with me. It is my right to be championed by my closest friends, he says. Aw. He then asks McCoy as well. And believe it or not, McCoy doesn't even make a joke out of it. You know? He just says, I'll be honored. 
Like, uh, you know, he knows that they're friends or something. But all this, like, bickering that they do is, like, totally fine. Then, of course, we get a call from Vulcan Space Central. It's uh, T'Pring, my wife. She pops onto the screen. Oh, and poor Chapel here, all sad. Wah, wah. And uh, we go to commercial. So back from the commercial then, uh, they beam down to the planet Vulcan. We get our first look. And <clears throat> we get this, like, impressive shot of this, like, giant archway. You know, and then they you see him, like, walking across the top of it. And then they get to the big circle where the studio's painted. And I was like, this is clearly from the remade one, right? Like, this isn't wasn't from the original one. And sure enough, all you see them do on the in the original episode is beam down to the planet, like walk around a corner, and they're there. They're at the uh, they're on uh, the Vulcan land. Uh, so then, also here we get that line, "Hot Vulcan," which we have used. Then uh, the wedding party arrives. The Vulcan music really works here. It's all percussive. It's it creates drama. It seems foreign, but not bizarre it's great yeah they really work and they, and they also help build the tension too a lot in this uh in the upcoming fight and whatnot so uh we also find out Tapau is the only person to turn down a seat on the federation council Ooh. to which then kirk replies he never mentioned his family was so important by the way also here she calls him spoke i was like it's hard not to get the impression that Vulcans have an aristocracy and Spock's family comes from it. Maybe it's an aristocracy of science. Maybe it's very much a, a meritocratic aristocracy, but we've got these family lands that have been held by Spock's family for a very long time. Spock's father, we'll find out soon, is an ambassador. His family knows Tapau. These are highly connected people. So however that works, long land tenures and access to the kind of leaders who can say no to a Federation Council seat, these are important people. I don't let you spoke. Dr. Kirk, and uh, to kind of eyes him, you know, you call these off-worlders friends, she says. How do you pledge their behavior? With my life, Tapau, says Spock. The ceremony continues, but then is interrupted by Tapring. She has decided on the challenge. She will choose the champion. And the champion she chooses is Kirk. There's a moment there where you're like, you, you think she's going to do Stan because, you know, Kirk's kind of been eyeing him all along. Yeah. Yes, he said, no, I have made the claim, he says. Uh, but this proves to be a brief etiquette, and he formally steps back. But, yep, but why has she chosen Kirk? What is going on with this crazy ceremony? We don't know. T'Pau then gets up, and Spock meets her. My friends do not understand, he says. They don't know what this means. The choice has been made, she says. Spock claims his blood. 
Spock claims his blood is as Vulcan's as anyone, but continues to plead that Kirk not be a part of this. Kirk then tries to interrupt to say, well, just to see, like, you know, what does it mean if I back out? What happens here? T'Pau tells Kirk not to interfere. So Kirk decides to go through with it. His plan is to throw the mat. Things got, get hairy and all will be served. Which is a good thought. Until we find out that the combat is to the death. Uh-oh, commercial. Back from it, uh, Spock again tries to say, uh, uh, hey, he didn't know what was going on. No, the challenge has been lawfully accepted. <laughs> Suddenly, Tapring has become German. I don't know what's happened. Um, lawfully accepted. So, so then the battle... The, <laughs> would you like a sausage with your lawfully accepted challenge? Uh, yeah, so the battle begins. Kirk's shirt is like almost immediately torn right away. We also see a lot of the stunt guys in this one, if you're paying attention. It's actually, you don't have to pay attention that hard. It's pretty obviously the stunt guys. Uh, and the battle is going hard, but then all of a sudden the battle is stopped by Tapau. Why? Oh, we have to change weapons, it appears. Bones takes this moment, says, uh, this isn't fair. Uh, with this atmosphere and the heat, there's no way that uh, Kirk's going to win this. So uh, here he gives him a, a hypo telling uh, T'Pau that this will help him breathe in this vault. The air is the air. That's right. Uh, so the new weapons are added into the mix, which are like these... I don't know, like... What I carry on my, like, luggage. You know, it's like one of the straps that'll, like, help me carry my luggage. And they've had a thing at the end of them that they can fling at each other. <laughs> also made a comment. Hey, do you think uh, that Nimoy and Shatner are working some uh, behind-the-scenes stuff out here? Because that's what it seems like. Spock uh, then has Kirk by the throat. But then so does Kirk. But then Spock gets him and starts to choke him out. And then suddenly, oh my gosh, Kirk is dead. Bones and Spock are quite forlorn. Uh, Bones calls up to the Enterprise. To get and tells them to get ready to immediately beam up the landing party. Bones goes to him and says, Spock, you're in charge now. Do you mind if I take him up to the uh, Enterprise? To which Bones does, takes him up. Spock says uh, he's ready to be taken into custody for the death of Kirk, but first has to take care of some stuff down below. So the first thing he does is ask to bring, why the challenge? Why choose Kirk? Which, of course, are the questions I ask. She says, Don wanted me, and I wanted him. You are a legend. I don't want to be the consort of a legend. Captain wins. He won't accept her. I get Don. Spock wins. He won't accept me, because I took the challenge. She gets Don. Even if Spock wins, he will leave. She'll have all the property in the name. And she will still have Stan. Oh. Very logical, says Spock. He then gives Stan to her with that line, uh, having is not the same as wanting. It is not logical, but true. Uh, he then goes to T'Pau, who says, uh, Live long and prosper, Spock. 
I shan't do either, because I have killed my CO and my friend. So now comes the question, do, uh, he's in a, uh, we'll, we'll get court-martialed is the question. So here he is, he's in a ceremony of his planet, and, you know, Kirk accepts the challenge of being, you know, part of the ceremony, even though he doesn't quite know what it means. Do you think Spock would actually be court-martialed for doing something? He might get kicked out of Starfleet, but do you think that he'd actually get... I have to imagine that Starfleet has rules that take into account that member worlds probably had their mind more on the Andorians, but obviously the Vulcans have their crazy stuff too. I'm sure the Federation had rules like what happens when you have these crew members from different worlds and they they take shore leave on one guy's planet and it turns out that there's like this crazy thing and whoops, something happened. And that you go, well, local rules have to apply. Because everyone's going to ultimately be happy with local rules apply. I mean, you may not like a particular case because it's your son or your brother or whatever, but it's the only really fair rule because otherwise, you know, people are going to get ticked off that yep. we're basically yeah, using Earth okay. rules because that's what's going to seem normal to the audience. And for all we know, we've got bizarre rules that, you know, the Vulcans are like, oh, my God, you go to Earth and you end up, like, having to eat Christmas dinner with the family. This is intolerable. They're talking about uh, just, like, the craziest stuff. Uh, and, like, I can't leave. <laughs> I was kidnapped. So I imagine it's basically local rules apply. That's right. And the Federation just accepts that. Especially if Ponfar is involved. So uh, he beats up, and he goes to visit Bones in sickbay, asking if Bones will make the final arrangements for Kirk's body. But then Kirk shows up. Spock is happy to see him. He smiles, and he calls him Jim. Oh, my goodness. And then he does the Picard maneuver and says, uh, I am pleased to see you. T'Pau, we find, too, has also made excuses for the uh, Enterprise's diversion to Vulcan, which we have talked about. Uh, as they are walking, uh, uh, Kirk says, uh, come on, Spock, let's go mine the store. And as they're walking out, uh, Bone says, you know, your reaction to to uh, uh, Kirk being alive is very, it's quite logical. In a pig's eye. <laughs> and that's the last line we go out of the first. So the final price tag of uh, Amok Time $200,000, which was, of course, $20,000 more than Desilu wanted a much time to cost. So uh, that's not good. The, season, uh, the second season deficit has now increased to uh, $121,000. Oh, boy. So uh, a much time was one of the uh, four season two episodes nominated for a Hugo Award. So that's nice. Four episodes from season two nominated for a Hugo Award. Uh, this is a funny story I read. Since the Vulcan's mating cycle seemed to be uh, too an adult topic for West German television at the time, ZDF aired a version that had radically changed dialogue, rearranging some scenes while cutting completely. As a result, Spock instead was not, instead of going through Ponfar, suffered from a lethal disease. The uh, German episode title was 
Weltraum fever, which translates to space fever. Exactly. To uh, save his life, McCoy administers an experimental drug that leaves Spock delusional. Large parts of the Enterprise visiting Vulcan, Spock fighting, and eventually killing Kirk are explained away as hallucinations. That's great. In 1996, using the title Ponfar, the episode was redubbed, restoring it back to its original story. So uh, we talked about this earlier in the first episode, which we didn't get to in this one, so we'll talk about it now. Uh, but uh, one of the things we talked about last time that we hadn't gotten to yet in this one was the uh, where this episode ranks in people's uh, rankings. I can't remember the website you were talking about last time, but they ranked it number one, which was interesting over uh, over the city of on the edge of tomorrow, which is usually the one that's number one. Looking at a list here that has it ranked as number ten, so they've got it uh, in front of a taste of Armageddon, but behind Galileo Seven and Corbomite, Journey to Babel, Mirror Mirror, Space Seed. Devil in the Dark, Trouble with Tribbles, City on the Edge of Forever is number two, and Balance of Terror as number one, which, of course, totally makes sense to me. Well, but it's interesting because everything that you named is first season or second season. I don't think that there are any third episodes in there. So, oh boy, that third season might be a slog. It happens. Uh, Star Trek the Magazine uh, ran a poll in 1977 to determine, this is 77 now, to determine the fear yeah the uh, series' uh, most popular episodes. Amok Time came in second, bested only by The City on the Edge of Forever. <clears throat> Entertainment Weekly more recently uh, said it was the fifth best Trek of all time. Uh, Stark 101, published in 2008 by Pocket Books, included Amok Time in its list of 10 episodes. Director Joseph Peevney named Amok Time as one of his favorites. And uh, Leonard Nimoy ranked this as the... Uh, most powerful and meaningful episode among his half-dozen favorites. To this day, images of that show uh, crop up around the world, he says. Spock doing the Vulcan hand salute and live long and prosper. In fact, he says, I recently saw a large billboard for a lube company, auto lube company that said lube long and prosper. Uh, he goes on to say, it's an excellent script, very poetic, dramatic, and intense, and important for Spock and for all Vulcans, because it's the first time we are going to get we go to go to Vulcan and see other Vulcans. Felt it immediately, and then there's that wonderful payoff where I believe that uh, I'd killed Kirk. It's a great moment. Uh, and so there's uh, Annie Rapp, too, from uh, Discovery. Described this as one of his favorite Star Trek episodes, the other one being uh, The Devil in the Dark. And, uh, and clarified what he appreciated about both episodes is, that how, is how they depicted Spock. Rapp elaborated by saying, I love what those two episodes tell us, uh, tell us about him and uh, what he's going through as a half-human, half-Vulcan person. Also, incredible storytelling about Muck Time, the twists involved, being able to watch Leonard Nimoy do anything, but especially the work he did on those two episodes, it's really extraordinary. So uh, here we go, our modern-day uh, modern uh, doctor from his folks. Just a couple more funny things that I read. Uh, somebody... Um, they wrote in hearing that they were going to uh, go to Vulcan and that uh, he was going to find a mate. Wrote a letter to <laughs> Gene Roddenberry saying, Dear Sirs, it has been reported that you are looking for a Vulcanian girl for Star Trek. 
first of all, I love the use of Alcanian. And let's not overlook Romulanian. Yes, in the Romulanian. Sirs, too many Vulcanians spoil the program. Please leave, please leave Spock as the only Vulcanian, because even though Spock has no emotions, you never know what a Vulcanian girl around will do. So don't get one, because I'm afraid, and I agree with all my friends, if we can't have Spock to ourselves, we will turn the channel. It's selfish but true. That made me laugh so hard. I love that. To which uh, this was a type of question they had gotten a lot, so they actually put out a, a statement basically saying there are no plans for Mr. Spock to permanently have a Vulcan girl at his side. Ah, oh, and there we go. We did it. Oh, my gosh. What a marathon. <laughs> uh, yeah. Almost three, three, uh, three hours, 20 minutes almost. Woo. All right. Well, hey, next week we got uh, the Doomsday Machine coming. Another uh, crazy episode I did know nothing about, otherwise I'd speak more to it. But that's that. Uh, anything else we didn't cover, Ken, that you want to hit on? I'm still concerned about how the Vulcan child didn't have a hat or a different hairstyle. Why do all the Vulcans have to have the same hairstyle? And if that's the case, isn't Amanda's hair totally a scandal, like a planet-wide scandal? Perhaps we should save this for Journey to Babel. Something else to talk about next week. Oh, you know what else? Uh, something else I just remembered is that uh, uh, having just recently edited the episode of The Alternative Factor, was uh, one of the things we talked about in that episode is how they dismissed a B storyline in that episode, and that's part of what made that episode feel extra long, was the fact that it was like having taken out the B episode – they just filled it with a lot of, like, Kirk and Spock talking about, like, well, isn't it crazy that this has happened now, you know? But uh, oddly enough, in this episode, we didn't even have a B story. And uh, it was fine. So it just goes to show that not every time you're going to have a B story does it, uh, is it necessary. So that's fun. Fair enough and true. Well, that's going to wrap it up. Like I said, next week we got the Doomsday Machine, so tune in for that. Take a look for us. We're on the YouTubes. We're on iTunes. We're on SoundCloud uh, and uh, Facebook. Come find us on Facebook because sometimes we post cool things on the Facebook page as well as our episodes. So, oh, we're also on Instagram. Find us there too. We've got lots of funny things happening on Instagram. Ha <laughs> ha! Comments doing. Uh, so that's it. As always, my name's Matt. Saying goodbye and say goodbye, Ken. Live long and prosper. That's and we will see everybody next week.